Well, I'd like to take a, an informal survey this morning uh, just to see if I'm the only one who's ever asked this. I, I feel like I'm probably not. How many of you have ever at any point in your life wondered either in your own mind or even out loud to no one else or to someone else, I just want to know what God wants me to do? Anybody ever, ever at any point in your life ever ask that? Okay, just a few of us. Okay. How many times have you found yourself asking that question maybe for the big issues of life? It, it could be something significant, a monumental decision that you're facing, or it could be something small to other people but significant to you. It could be in a relationship. Uh, but then there are those times where you didn't anticipate needing to know what God wanted you to do. When a crisis comes, when something difficult happens, uh, where there's an unexpected emergency, a job loss, there's a death, there's an illness, something happens that you weren't expecting, and in that moment, right then, you don't need to know a month from now, a week from now, really even 48 hours from now isn't enough time. You need to know absolutely in that moment, what do I do now? Anybody ever been there before? Yeah, just a few of us again, yeah. I want to share with you this morning a fairly simple principle that I think we find in Scripture over and over and over again about what do we do when we don't know what else to do. What do we do when it doesn't make sense, things haven't turned out the way I hoped they would, the way I planned them to, the way I dreamed they would? What do I do in those moments when I just don't know what it is that God wants me to do. There's a passage of scripture found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 and the prophet Micah was talking to the people of God and the nation as a whole was a mess. There were all kinds of problems and crises. There, were, there was confusion, all kinds of different people talking about different solutions and what ought to be done. There were political parties uh, on complete opposite sides of every issue. Uh, there was no consensus among religious leaders about the right thing to do. And the prophet Micah said this in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He said, He, God, has told you, O man, what is good. It's not a secret. It's not a mystery. God's already told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And here it comes. But to do justice... And to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Three things. Three things that might seem overly simplistic and obvious, and yet we often forget them. To do justice, be fair, do what is right. And then the second, to love kindness. Now the Hebrew word for love kindness is the word hesed. It's a word we've been looking at for several weeks. Hesed is the word for stubborn love, a love that is based on commitment, a love that's not based on emotion or feeling, but a love that's determined, a love that sticks, a love that stays, a love that doesn't have to be reciprocated. I'm going to love you no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you treat me, I'm going to love you like that. Do justice love kindness, hesed, and walk humbly with your God. Now, I want us to take a look at a story today in, found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to find this story, where I think we see this principle lived out so clearly in the life of two characters that it speaks to us thousands of years later. 
Long after this story had, would have been forgotten otherwise, the principle from it stays with us and we still read this story because there's something very practical that we can learn from these two characters we're going to read about today. And that is, what do I do when I need to know what God wants me to do and I'm in the middle of a crisis? And the answer is simple, but it's not easy. The answer is, do the next right thing. Just keep doing the next right thing. Don't worry about what the ramifications of that next right decision will be tomorrow or in a week or in a month. Just keep doing the next right thing. The story of Ruth begins not with Ruth, but with a woman named Naomi. And Naomi and her husband had two sons, and they lived in the town of Bethlehem. A town that would play huge significance in the story of Christianity as it's the place where Jesus would be born. But this was many, many hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And there was a terrible famine in the land of Bethlehem. And so Naomi, her husband, and their two boys moved away from Bethlehem to the country of Moab where they weren't suffering from the results of famine. And they lived there. But shortly after moving there, uh, Naomi's husband died, leaving her with these two boys and as life would move on, the two boys would marry two Moabite women. And then shortly after their wedding to these foreign ladies, the, the boys died. We don't know if it was a plague or a war, but, but it left Naomi as a widow. And she buried both of her boys and she had these two young widows, her daughters-in-law, that she had to care for. Word eventually got back to Naomi that the drought in Bethlehem had ended. There was food there again. So she and the two girls began to move back to Bethlehem. But along the journey, it, the journey must have been hard. They must have run out of supplies. Something happened. And she eventually turned to the two girls. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Listen, girls, just go home. Just go back to your country. Go back to your people get married and live a good life. Well, one of the daughters-in-law took her mother-in-law's advice and she went back to Moab. But the other daughter, Ruth, said, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. I'm staying with you. Because I don't know how you'll make it back to Bethlehem by yourself. I don't know what you'll do when you get there. You need somebody. And it might not be my problem, but it is my responsibility. And the next right thing for me to do, Naomi, is to stay with you is to travel with you and to do the next right thing. And so Naomi and Ruth find their way back to the city of Bethlehem. And that's where we pick the story up in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. The author's going to give us just a little foreshadow of what's about to happen in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Now, up to this point, we've really thought that Naomi was destitute and had no one to go back to. Naomi may have really believed that. This relative of her husband's may have been a very distant relative that she didn't know well or, or that she was not very familiar with. But whatever the relationship, she at least wasn't conscious of him when she was talking to her daughters-in-law back in Moab. But we find out in chapter 2 that there is a relative. And it says this about this man, that he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And the name Boaz literally means in him is strength. And we're going to see through the remainder of the story of Ruth the strength that Boaz had that came not from his own strength, but from the God that he served. So that's just a little foretaste of what's to happen. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, 
go, my daughter. Now, this is kind of an interesting idea, one that we don't practice much in our culture today, but the idea of gleaning in this day and age was a provision that God had left for his people in the law as a gift, as a safety net for the people who were in need. The law, which if you want to look it up, you can find it uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, and here's what the law simply says. If you're a farmer and you go to bring in the harvest, don't harvest your field all the way to the edge. Leave the edges of your fields unharvested. And by the way, as you're harvesting, if some of the grain falls to the ground, which it inevitably will, don't pick it up. Just leave it there. If you're a vine dresser and you're picking grapes off the vine, don't, don't, pick, the, don't pick the vines dry. Leave some grapes on the vine. If you are picking fruit from the trees, don't climb all the way to the very tops of the trees. Leave the fruit there. Because when the poor among you are in need, they can come to your field and they can glean of the excess that I have blessed you with. Did you hear that? God said, leave margin in your life because there are going to be people that I'm going to bring into your path who are going to have needs. And when they have needs, if you've left margin, you will be my instrument through whom I will bless those who are in need. If only we would live our lives that way today. But what do we do so often? We live our lives all the way to the edge of the field, don't we? We pick up everything that's dropped on the ground, and we call it being responsible. What God is saying to his people is, leave extra, because you never know when I'm going to call upon you to be generous. And if you live your life to the edges, you've left no space for generosity. And it's not just in your checkbook, it's on your calendar as well. For those of us who are so busy that we fill up every white space on the page, do you know what we've done? We've harvested our time to the edges of our field. And when the call comes of someone in our life who's important to us, who needs us, we're not available, are we? Because we're too busy. Don't harvest to the edge of your field. Leave margin for how God may use the extra in your life to be a blessing to someone else. Verse 3. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part, the part of a field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, Ruth did not set out with any foreknowledge of what was going to happen. Ruth got back to Bethlehem with Naomi. The situation was desperate. She didn't know what else to do, so she just did the next right thing. And the next right thing to do in Ruth's case was find a way to provide food for her mother-in-law. Find something that she could use to feed their little family. And so she said, I'm going to set out and I'm going to find a field where somebody hasn't gleaned all the way to the edges and I'm going to hopefully find favor in that farmer's eyes, and I'm going to bring enough food back for us. And so Ruth set out just to do what was right. She did not have a master plan. She didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. She just did the next right thing. And God always has a master plan. 
And God's master plan begins with our faithful obedience to the next right decision that we make. And Ruth put herself in a position to receive God's blessing by being obedient to the next right thing in her life. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. We already know something about Boaz. That the most important thing to Boaz wasn't a profit margin. Otherwise, he'd have, been glean, he'd have been harvesting all the way to the edge of his field. We also know that he trusted and loved the Lord more than he loved his business. Because when he came up upon his employees, the first thing he said wasn't, how's business? How's everything going? How's the harvest going? The first thing he said is, the Lord bless you. And it must have been a pattern with Boaz because those who worked for him responded, and the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Boaz noticed. He looked around and he saw among all the workers, and there were many, and there were many women who had come to work in the field as well. He recognized somebody was out of place. Somebody was a part of his workforce that he had not seen before. And he was asking, who's responsible for this girl? In this culture, as in many cultures still today in this part of the world, there's a difference between a woman who's accompanied and a woman who is unaccompanied. See, an accompanied woman was considered respectable. A, comp- an, a woman who was accompanied was considered worthy of, worthy of respect and trust. She was protected. Only women who were not respectable who were available to be taken advantage of, would ever have gone out unaccompanied. And Ruth, because of her circumstances, had gone out unaccompanied. And Boaz recognized, who is this girl? Nobody's with her. I don't recognize her. I don't know her. Whose responsibility is she? Verse 6, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, See, the whole town was already talking about this foreigner. The, the, the story of her generosity, the story of her hesed had already spread throughout the whole town. The foreman of Boaz's field understood and knew who she was. He had heard the rumors, he had heard the story, and he was telling Boaz, Boaz, this is that girl. She came and she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's amazing. She's working harder than the people we're paying to work. She's only taken one short break today. I mean, this hesed love that she is showing for Naomi is unbelievable. Do you see what she's doing? Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You know what Boaz did? He did the next right thing. He didn't plan that morning to take the responsibility for some strange young accompanied girl in his field. He saw a need, and he met the need. And it wasn't his problem, but he made it his responsibility. He just did the next right thing. He provided for Ruth. He said, Ruth, stick with my people. 
You're here unaccompanied, but you're not unaccompanied anymore. You're part of my crew. Pick up what you need, and when you need something to drink, I want you to drink with the rest of my paid workers. Verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I mean, Ruth is overwhelmed. I don't know if you've noticed in this story so far, but nothing has gone Ruth's way so far. Nothing. And finally, finally she experiences the favor of somebody, and she almost can't believe it. It's almost too good to be true. And she wants an explanation or a reason for it. Why are you doing this for me? I'm a foreigner. I'm a stranger. You have no obligation to me. Why would you do this? Listen to Boaz's answer, but Boaz answered her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. Ruth, you just kept doing the right thing. You just did the right thing. Even when it was hard, even when it didn't make sense, Ruth, you just did the right thing. You know, when you do the right thing, it catches people's attention, doesn't it? Because the right thing to do isn't always the easy thing to do. And when the right thing to do is not the easy thing to do, it stands out and people take notice and Boaz notice. And then listen to what he says next. The Lord, not Boaz, not me, Ruth, it's the Lord who is repaying you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. You see, Boaz recognized something in Ruth's life. She says, Ruth, you positioned yourself to be protected, not by me, but by God. You positioned yourself in just the right place by doing the next right thing when it didn't make sense and when you didn't know how it would turn out tomorrow. You did the right thing, and by doing that, you put yourself in the position where God himself would watch out for you and protect you, where God himself would provide for you. It's not me, Ruth, who's providing for you. I didn't write the gleaning law. God wrote the gleaning law. I just did the next right thing by obeying it. And then here you come, and you're perfectly positioned to receive God's blessing, God's provision, and God's protection. Ruth, because you did the right thing. Isn't it amazing? When we just simply do the next right thing, how God is faithful with what we don't know and what we don't have. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, there's an interesting verse. It's God speaking to two brothers, Cain and Abel. And they're fighting like brothers often do. But this fight turns a little more vicious than most. Uh, they, they had started out simp- uh, innocently enough. They both brought an offering. The only problem was um, Cain was kind of skimpy on his offering. And Abel brought the very best he had. And so God was pleased with Abel's offering, but he wasn't so pleased with Cain's offering. And Cain got kind of wrapped around the axle about it. And so God speaks to Cain, and here's what he says to him. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
If you just do what is right, won't everything work out the way it should work out? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. See, when we refuse to do the next right thing, we open ourselves up for sin to come in and have its way in our life, which is exactly what Cain ended up doing. It, draw, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Do you know how you rule over sin? You do the next right thing. You turn the computer off. You, you don't push send on the email. You go when you don't feel like going. You serve when you don't feel like serving. You bite your tongue when you want so badly to say the hard thing. You say the hard thing when you want so badly to ignore what's going on. You just do the next right thing. There are a couple lessons I have drawn from this passage as I've just read it and, and thought about it over the last few days. As I just thought about the amazing characters in this story. Ruth, what a remarkable woman. What a wonderful example. And then Boaz, we're introduced to Boaz. What a great example. I just, some simple lessons, things that you've all heard before, nothing earth shattering, things your mama probably told you and repeated to you over and over again, but they, we need to be reminded sometimes of these simple lessons. And here's the first one. Be a person of character. Decide to be a person of character with every choice that you make. See, the person you are becoming, your character, is determined by your response to the problems that you face. The challenges that you face in your life right now are an opportunity for character to be forged inside of you. How you choose to respond. Listen, the people who inspire us, the people who challenge us, the people whose biographies we read, they're not remembered because their lives were trouble-free but because of how they responded to tragedy and strife and difficulty in the midst of their circumstances. Think about great figures of history. Would we talk about Abraham Lincoln if it weren't for the Civil War? Or would he just be another in the list of 44 presidents? Would we read biographies about Winston Churchill if it had not been for the devastation of World War II on his homeland and how he chose to respond when things were difficult? I doubt it. You see, our character is forged in the midst of our crisis, but you don't become the person that you need to be before the crisis. You become that person in every decision you make along the way as you continue to make the next right choice and the next right choice and the next right choice. Something is being forged inside of you, preparing you for the crisis that will come. And when you're in the middle of that crisis, your character shines forth. And I just would challenge everybody. I don't know what your circumstances are, what you may be facing. Maybe even this week as you have family coming in for the holidays. Maybe there's some challenges that are coming your way. I want you to ask yourself this question. How would I want someone who isn't me to respond to the challenge I am facing? If you could write the story, if you could step out of the story of your life, if you could step out of your difficult circumstances, and you were writing the response of the person who is playing you in the story, what would you have them do next? Make the next right choice. Part of being a person of character means that when everything is wrong, you do what is right. And the more wrong things are, 
the more desperate the circumstance calls for somebody to do what is right. But do you know what often happens when we face challenges and when everything's going wrong? We feel entitled to make a wrong decision. We look at the choices other people's making and we think, well, they're not doing the right thing. They're not following the law. They're, they're harvesting their field to the edges. We feel justified in making bad decisions. The more complicated and the more wrong decisions are made by the people around us, the more we will be tempted to just go in with everybody else and make the wrong choice. But when everything is wrong, you just do what is right. Be a person of character. We also need to be people of vision. Be a person of vision. We see this played out in Boaz's life. Leave margin in your life today to respond to the needs of, that God will reveal tomorrow. That's vision. That's understanding that God has given us very simple directives for a reason. And we may not know all the details of what tomorrow has coming to us, but if we will simply be faithful in what God has called us to do today, if we will do what we know, it will position us to respond to the things we can't know. Be a person of vision. Leave margin in your life. Leave space in your life so that when the opportunities come your way, you're in a position to respond. Boaz's obedience to God's simple law, not to harvest all the way to the edge of his field, put him in a position of greater responsibility and blessing. I love what it says in Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Do you ever think about that? That your willingness to be generous to other people is actually generosity to God himself. Your generosity to the poor is generosity to the Lord. And he will, he will, God will repay him for his deed. Be a person of vision. Leave margin in your life. Because big vision begins as a response to small needs. Big vision begins as a response to small needs. Many times we are guilty of looking for God's will in some big, massive, earth-shattering thing. And I think God's calling us just to be obedient to what he's going to bring into our path tomorrow. And as we are obedient with the small things that God brings to our attention, God will be faithful and continue to give us more responsibility and give us more direction for the future as it unfolds. Be a person of character. Be a person of vision. And finally, be a person of action. Be a person of action. Don't wait to be asked to do what needs to be done. How many of you have told your kids that? Don't wait for me to ask you to do what's obvious needs to be done. I, I'm, if I, I must say that in my house 20,000 times a day. The trash is overflowing. Does nobody see that the trash needs to go out? I'm sure I'm the only household where that's the case. But we, we think about this when it comes to the simple things, when it comes to the mundane things. But what if we began to look at the whole world that way? What if you began to look at your workplace that way? What if you began to look at your community that way? What if we all began to look at the church that way? Not waiting to do what obviously needs to be done. This is a principle that you have to rehearse in the simple things 
so that it's second nature when the complex things of life come your way. If you're not living your life this way on a day-to-day basis in the very simple relationships of your life, you will never do it when crisis comes. You will be one of those people who stand around saying, I sure wish somebody would do something about that. And the very fact that you see the need is an indication to me that God may be inviting you to do something about it. Boaz didn't think, I wish somebody would provide and protect for that young girl. He saw what needed to be done, and he did the next right thing. Naomi didn't sit around with Ruth, and Ruth sit around in the house thinking, I wish somebody would bring us some food. We're hungry. We're poor widows. Ruth saw the need, and she didn't wait to be asked. Naomi didn't ask her to do it. She just did the next right thing. Don't wait to be asked. And you say, but it's not my fault. It's probably not your fault. But it is your responsibility. And there's a big difference. Do the next right thing. Make the next right choice. Ruth did that. Boaz did that. And God used their right choices to provide for them and to bless them and eventually to change their nation. And it was all about the next right decision. Many times we refuse to make the next right decision because we're worried about the consequences that right decision may have tomorrow. We think to ourselves, I know what the right thing to do is, but if I do that, then this is what could happen tomorrow. You know what Jesus said? Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. You just do the next right thing and let me worry about tomorrow. Be a person of vision. Be a person of character. Be a person of action. And part of being a person of action comes down to something pretty simple. Be useful. Be useful. The world has plenty of people who can speculate, pontificate, and evaluate. What the world needs are people who will put down the clipboard, put down the flowchart, set aside the electronic device, and pick up the towel and serve somebody. That's what the world needs. Be useful. Be a person of action. Ask yourself this question. What is most helpful in this circumstance? What would be most helpful to that person? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love is kind. You know, I thought about that for a long time. Love is a complicated emotion. At least we make it complicated. Love is kind of nebulous. It's kind of mushy. This is why men have trouble with that, you know. It's just you can't get your, you can't quantify it. You can't qualify it. You don't, you can't explain it. It's always kind of like, well, it seems to me and it feels like. Do you know what's not that way? Kindness. Kindness just is. Kindness is just doing what needs to be done because it needs to be done and it's the right thing to do. That's kindness. And Paul says that's what love is. To be kind. Make the next right choice. Take a meal when a meal is needed. Volunteer to babysit the kids when there's a crisis in the house. Make a phone call. Send a letter. Be kind. You know, old man, what is right, what the Lord requires of you. Do justice. Love kindness. And walk humbly 
with your God. Do the next right thing. I'm so grateful for the book of Ruth and for the story of Ruth and for the story of Boaz and the example they give us. But you know, they're not the best example of this in the Bible. There's a better one. His name was Jesus. And, and maybe of all the stories that Jesus exemplified this, maybe the most clear example is found in John chapter 13. And he's with the disciples, and it's time for the Passover. And so all the disciples are talking. They're trying to figure out where they're going to go, what they're going to do. And so Jesus tells them, he said, you know, go to this upper room and, and prepare. We're going to have the Passover there. They go to this place. There's a problem with it, though. I don't know what was going on the holiday. There was busyness. There, was no, there were no servants there. And the responsibility, the job of the lowliest servant in the house was to wash the feet of the guests as they came in. Because obviously they were walking around in sandals on dusty roads and so people's feet needed to be washed when they came into the house. And so and they come into this upper room and the disciples, the 12 disciples are all with Jesus and they're talking. I mean, they've got big plans. I mean, Jesus is going to be king. So we got to come up with a strategy. We got to have a plan. We need to know what the big picture is here. And so they're arguing who's going to sit on Jesus' right and who's going to sit on his left. Who's going to be Secretary of State and Secretary of Labor? What's going to happen when all this is worked out? We need a plan. And Jesus is the only one with vision in the room. Because he sees what the rest of them do not see. And that is that there's something that needs to be done. And nobody feels like it's their problem. But Jesus makes it his responsibility. And he picks up a towel, and he gets a basin of water, and he does the next right thing. He washes their feet, and the conversation comes to a stop. Because Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God, is kneeling down at my feet. He's serving me because that's what he does. The Bible says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, that he took on the form of a servant made in human likeness. And it tells us you should be like that if you want to follow him. And do you know what that requires? That you do the next right thing. That you serve when it doesn't make sense. That you love when it's unreasonable. And then when you do that, you wake up the next day and you do the next right thing and the next right thing. And as you walk in obedience day by day, moment by moment, God will be faithful and he will meet you along every step of the journey. And you may not be able to forecast ahead what God's will for you is in the big picture in 10 years or 20 years. But day by day, moment by moment, you will walk with the Lord. And one day you will look back and you will say, I never even realized I was walking with him all along. Because I just made the next right decision. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment? I want to invite you this morning to just pause for a minute and just to think and reflect. What is a circumstance in your life? What is a relationship? What is a problem? What is a challenge right now that you are facing? 
And what is the next right decision to be made? If someone who isn't you were living out the story that is your life, what would you tell them to do next? What's keeping you from making that next right choice? Is it fear of tomorrow? And what the consequences of that next right choice might be? What if you didn't worry about it? What if you just determined by faith to be obedient today and trust God with tomorrow? This morning, for some of you, maybe the next right decision is to finally and fully surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what it means for him to be Lord. It means you just keep walking moment by moment, day by day, in an attitude of humility that says, Lord, what is my next right choice? And then by faith you do it. Maybe today your next right choice is just surrendering to Jesus. Maybe your next right choice is on Thanksgiving working to bring about peace in a broken relationship in your family. Maybe your next right choice is tomorrow in the office or in the classroom where there's someone who for some unexplained reason you're constantly drawn toward them and you don't even know why. But maybe the next right choice is for you to reach out, to extend yourself, to show justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the examples that you have given us in the scripture, but most importantly, we thank you for your example in Jesus Christ of what it means to walk by faith and in obedience. And Lord, we thank you that as we live our lives, moment by moment, making the next right choice, that you shadow us under the shelter of your wing. That you become our protector. You become our provider. Lord, by faith today, there are those who are here who don't know where their provision is going to come from. They don't know where their protection is going to come from. Lord, give them the faith to make the next right choice. And then, Lord, reveal yourself in their acts of obedience. For those who are here today who have never trusted you, As their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would just do the next right thing and open their hearts and say, I'm yours, Lord. Today, today, Father, we thank you for the revelation of your love and your faithfulness to us. Lord, we pray that in this time of commitment, you'll draw our hearts to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.